Well, welcome everyone. We are going to start a new study tonight. We will be in Ephesians chapter number one. So if you'll turn there uh, to give you a little bit of uh, lay the groundwork for Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul roughly around uh, the date of 61 A.D. Um, the theme of Ephesians is really centered around Christ and the church and our as Christians our riches in Christ Jesus. Uh, Ephesians is a very, very exciting book. Uh, it's very uplifting. It's very uh, inspiring. I love the book of Ephesians, and I'm really looking forward to the study. In the book of Ephesians, Paul depicts the church as the body of Christ and promotes unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. So this is one of the books where he is pulling uh, the Jews and the Gentiles together uh, with the idea that there's only one church, one body in Christ, not two separate churches, not a, not a religion for the Jews and one for the Gentiles, but that we're all in this uh, together and we all have salvation the same way and we worship God and serve God in the same way. Now, the book of Ephesians is one of the books that is commonly referred to as the prison epistles. So that is Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those were all written right around the same time, right around 61 to 62 A.D. in the two years that Paul was imprisoned in Rome. And when we think about being in a Roman prison, you think really bad things, you know, things that are cold and wet and, and nasty and harsh. Uh, but Paul, being a Roman citizen... Uh, this two-year stint, now Paul was in some pretty nasty prisons in his lifetime, but this two-year stint, he wasn't actually in a prison cell. He was uh, under house arrest. Uh, so he was uh, imprisoned in uh, a home, uh, but he wasn't able to leave. And um, the funny thing about it was is that he was imprisoned at his own expense. So the place where he was imprisoned, he had to pay for out of his own pocket, even though he wasn't allowed to leave. Uh, but it was better than being in a Roman jail cell, a Roman prison. Uh, but he, he had to pay uh, for the place where he was housed. He had to pay for that all out of his own pocket. <coughs> now, the subjects that Paul discusses uh, in Ephesians are kind of varied. So we will talk about predestination, Christ's headship over the body, the church as the building and the temple of God, the mystery of Christ, spiritual gifts, the church as the bride of Christ, and he also touches on home life as well. <coughs> so we'll cover all those going through the book of Ephesians. Now, Ephesians was written, we'll see here in verse number one, but 
to give you a little history about what Ephesus was, it was, it was written to the churches in Ephesus. That is located in present-day Turkey is where this was. And Ephesus, it was a major commercial trading city. It was a uh, major political city and religious center. Um, it had a population of around 350,000 people, which was a whole lot, especially in that day. And Ephesus rivaled Corinth as what we could say the filth capital of the world, or of the Roman Empire anyway. Um, people from all over the world came to Ephesus to see the temple of Artemis, also known as Diana. And uh, that temple uh, was commonly known for people coming to patronize the, quote, sacred prostitutes uh, whose services were offered as part of worship. Uh, so it was a religious capital, but it was a pagan religious capital. It was a filthy religion uh, that Ephesus was known for. And it was just a cesspool uh, of sin uh, at the very heart of religion. And we still have that today. We have uh, false doctrine. We have sin that is wrapped in the shroud of religion. Uh, that's always existed and probably always will exist because that's what Satan does. He takes the things of God and he perverts them and turns them into something that God never intended. So let's look at chapter 1, verse number 1 and 2. We'll start there. So Paul gives the greeting. He said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this, it's common for Paul. Paul is very common to do this. Uh, he always does a greeting usually, uh, and he identifies himself as the writer. Um, and he calls out, who he's writing the letter to. First of all, he's writing to the saints at Ephesus. So that's all the local churches in the area. So he's writing to the saints. But then he goes on and he says, uh, not only to the saints that are at Ephesus, but also to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So what he's doing is he's identifying this letter that the churches at Ephesus could distribute this to other cities, to other churches, because basically what Paul is saying is he's writing initially to the church of Ephesus, but this is for all believers. This is for all Christians. So it's written to us as well. So it has just as much emphasis on our lives today uh, as it did in uh, 61 AD when Paul originally wrote it. Now, in verse number two, he says, Grace uh, be to you and peace uh, from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So this was uh, one of Paul's regular greeting. Uh, his, one of his regular greeting to the Greeks or to the Gentile believers was peace uh, 
And shalom, uh, or I mean grace, was what Paul's greeting was to the Gentiles. And peace, uh, shalom, was the common Jewish greeting. So this is where we see right off the bat that Paul is speaking not only to the Gentiles, but also to the Jews. Because he gave two greetings. He gave one greeting uh, to the Gentile population that they recognize, and he gave one greeting to the Jewish population as well. Uh, so he included both of them and calls out both the Jews and the Gentiles uh, that they are both members uh, of the church family. And then he says, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and Paul identifies that the greeting and the doctrinal instruction that is to follow not only comes from him, but ultimately comes from God the Father and from Jesus Christ himself. So there's just two verses there, and a lot of times we'll read it and, and just kind of skim right over it, but there's great meaning in those two verses. It really, uh, when we stop and we think about it and we look at why did Paul say the things that he said, it was extremely significant because the people that got this, uh, we have to understand the time and we have to understand the culture uh, of the day and everyone completely understood right off the bat what Paul was saying with the greeting and uh, Paul was emphasizing that this is not his opinion, that this is coming from God. All right, so once we get past the greeting, then we're going to look at verse 3 through 6. We're going to look at uh, the mercy of God the Father. And this is where it really starts uh, getting good. Uh, he said in verse number 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the God, I'm sorry, according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So <clears throat> there's a lot in um, those uh, four verses. So let's, let's break it down a little bit. First of all, he says, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. If we look at John chapter number 14, verse 2 and 3. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I'll come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So this is the spiritual blessings in heavenly places that Paul is talking about. He's pointing out that there's so much more beyond what we can see here today. And when we look around the world, uh, we see a messed up place. We see a place where there's crime, there's violence, there's wickedness, there's sin. Uh, there's also uh, spirituality. 
there's the move of God, there's the Holy Spirit of God, so there's this great conflict. But Paul says, don't get focused on what we see, and don't get focused on what we hear. Don't get focused on where we are and what we experience, because that's not what it's about. He said, blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings, has God blessed us with spiritual blessings here on this earth? Absolutely. But the spiritual blessings that we have on this earth can't even be compared to the spiritual blessings that Paul said we have in heavenly places. Those blessings are really what we long for as Christians, what we look for. And the world, the lost world, when they see us and they see us able to function and able to uh, have joy in the midst of heartache and tragedy and the way the world is uh, messed up, they don't understand that. And the reason why they don't understand that is because if you think about it, all they have is their life here on this earth. The only thing they can live for is tomorrow, especially the atheist. The atheist that doesn't believe there's a God, that believes there's no life after death, that believes that when you die you just cease to exist, what hope do they have? What joy do they They have nothing. If, if they have a death in the family, what is there other than that? If they lose their job, if, if they have... Uh, you know, something bad happened to them, they're completely devastated because they have hope only in this life. They have blessings only in this life to where, as Christians, we can get through the day when things don't go our way, when we don't get the things we think we should have or we don't have the blessings that other people have or we don't maybe have the money or the possessions that other people have. Does it bother us? Yeah, we're human. But does it devastate us? No, because our blessings are in heavenly places. That's what we look for. That's what we long for. That We live here to serve Christ because he has given us a home in heaven. And that's where we're going to spend eternity. So we're, this is just a temporary stopping over place. Uh, I kind of think about it as staying in a hotel. If, I have to, if I'm traveling and I stop for a night in a hotel, and it's not a real nice hotel, is it the end of the world? No, because I'm checking out in the morning. <laughs> this is not my permanent dwelling. If it's not the nicest hotel in the world, I'm going to sleep on the bed for six or seven hours, and I'm getting up tomorrow, and I'm leaving. And that's how, as Christians, we should look at life. This is just a temporary night stay. <laughs> Compared to eternity, even a 70 or 80 or 90 year life is a drop in the bucket to eternity. It's literally like a night stay in a hotel. So we can't get bent out of shape that our hotel's not as nice as we think it should be because we're checking out in the morning. <laughs> this is not permanent. We're not, th this is not what our life is, is this world. Our life is after this world. So when I'm traveling with my family or on vacation or whatever, and we're going to Florida, well, we drive halfway to Florida and stay in a hotel for a night. That's not my life. My life is not that hotel room. That hotel room is just temporary. I'm checking out in the morning. We're going to go and do other things, 
uh, if because I've stayed in some hotels that if that if my happiness was built on that hotel that night, I wouldn't have made it till the next morning. <laughs> what got me through the night in this ratty hotel was the fact that I knew tomorrow morning I'm leaving. Now, my wife, she's a little bit different. Uh, if she walks in the hotel room and it's not up to standard, we're checking out and going somewhere else. But I'm kind of stingy. I've already paid the money and, you know, it, it would have to be really bad for me not to stay one night. Uh, that's just the way I am. But anyway, you get the point that Paul has told us that he has blessed us, not with just some spiritual blessings, but he said he's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. There is nothing that God the Father has withheld from us or will withhold from us because we are sons of God. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are the bride of Christ. When we get to heaven, he said, when we see him, we'll be like him. So we, we've got everything. So why in the world do we get so bent out of shape about this world and what's going on today? We've got everything waiting for us. We've got more waiting for us than we can even imagine is waiting for us. So that's how we can get through life, and that's how we can be happy in spite of everything that goes on in this world. <clears throat> All right, so now let's move on. Verse number four. Now we're going to get into some um, what some people may think of as um, controversial, but the only reason it's controversial is because sometimes people misunderstand. Uh, it's not really controversial if you, if you understand uh, what it's saying. But in verse number four, he said that he's given us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places and then in verse number four, he says, According as he, being God, hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And then in verse five, he said, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the good pleasure of of his will. Now, this is where that um, sometimes people get really confused. Now, in verse number four, he uses the word chosen. He has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. And in verse number five, he said that he predestinated us. Now, these two words have caused considerable confusion and debate within the church, within the body of Christ. So what in the world is Paul talking about here? So let's break it down. So first of all, let me say this. When we study scripture, my opinion doesn't matter. And not being rude, but neither does yours. Our opinions are irrelevant. What we think something means not that it's not important, but I may think it means something that it doesn't, so I could be wrong because I'm human. So when we study Scripture, we can't, I mean, I, I read a lot of 
uh, not a lot, I read after a few commentators, but I have some commentators that I read after, and it gives me a um, different perspective. I see things, uh, I can read after two different commentators on a certain passage of scripture, and one looks at it from one viewpoint and sees certain things in it, and another one will see other things in it, and I can read it, and I could see something else. But that's why I like to read commentaries when I'm studying scripture is because I can see things from other people's perspective that maybe I hadn't seen in that passage before and it can uh, open my mind and expand, expand my thinking. But when we study scripture, we have to interpret scripture by comparing it to scripture. I can't interpret scripture by reading after a commentator. I can't interpret scripture by going what somebody told me it means or what I was raised uh, that it meant or anything else. We always have to interpret scripture with scripture. So here's what we have to understand. The word of God does not and cannot contradict itself. So whenever there is a question on an interpretation or a meaning of a certain verse or a certain passage of scripture or on a topic, what we have to do is we have to look at other scripture. And if we can find another verse of scripture or another passage of scripture that needs no interpretation because it's plain, it's obvious, and that contradicts what my interpretation of the verse is or my interpretation of the subject is, then my interpretation's wrong. So that's what we have to do. We have to say, okay, when Paul said that God chose us and he said that God predestinated us, does that mean that God has an, a, a select elect, that it's not free will, that God has chosen who's going to be saved and he's chosen who's going to go to hell and humanity has no part in it. We, we, we have no say-so on who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Certain people are born to go to hell and certain people are born to go to heaven. That's what a lot of people get from this passage of scripture. So does it mean that? Does it mean that um, God chose certain people uh, and we don't really have free will? So in verse 4, that word chosen means to select. And some people interpret that to mean that God has selected who's going to be saved and who will not. But can we find any other scripture to help us understand exactly what Paul was telling us? Has God chosen certain people to be saved? And if you were born and you weren't one of the chosen, you have no hope. Is that true? Well, let's... Let's compare this scripture to other scripture. So in Matthew 10, 32, he said, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father which is in heaven. That doesn't sound like God chose certain people because he said, whosoever. So that opens it up to everybody. If he had selected just five of us in this room to go to heaven... He couldn't have said whosoever. So some people say, well, he, he said whosoever because he knew that only the people he already selected would, it, you know, we can, we can reason that, but 
Matthew 10, 32 is pretty plain and it's pretty clear. There's not much confusion in that verse. And if that was the only verse, maybe we could debate it. But John 3.15 says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 6.40 And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Every one. Everyone that believes on him. And then Revelation 22, verse 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Now, those verses are pretty plain <laughs> to say that it's up to you. It's 100% your call whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell. That you weren't born destined for heaven and no, nothing you could do would ever get you into heaven because God did not choose you. God laid it out all through scripture to make it very, very plain and very easy to understand. So what does Paul mean when he says he chosen us in him before the foundation of the world? John 6, says, No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. So when the Holy Spirit of God speaks to our heart and draws us, that's him choosing us. Now we can neglect, we, we can reject that, but that doesn't change the fact that he chose to convict us of, uh, of sin, that he chose to give us the opportunity for salvation. Then in John 15, 16, he says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And people will say, well, see there, that's where it says. We didn't choose God, he chose us. No, what he's saying is, is you can't come to me unless the Spirit which sent me draw him. See, no man can come to the Father but through the Son. And no, and no person can come to the Son without the a drawing and the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. So he has to choose to convict our heart. So does God only choose certain people? Well, we have to understand the will of God. What is God's will? He said, it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So if he only chose a certain percentage of the human race to be saved, then that contradicts the verse that says it's not his will that any should perish. Because if he chose certain people for hell, it would be his will that those people go to hell. It's not his will that anyone go to hell. It's his will that all, every human being that has ever been born and taken a breath on this planet, it was God's will that they be saved and they go to heaven. That was God's will. Now, does God's will always happen? No, because there's uh, our own 
thought process and we can choose to obey God or we can choose to reject God. It's his will that every single person be saved. Now, when we get into this word in verse number five, predestinated, that word means uh, to predetermine or to determine in advance. Here's what I want you to think about uh, on choosing uh, where he says he chose us and that he predestinated us. So he's chosen to give us the opportunity for salvation. Now, God chooses when and who he will call, but each person has the freedom to accept or reject that call. Let me give you an example. If there is somebody that works for a company and they have an opening in the company and they choose to hire me, they give me the offer of the job, I can accept that offer and go to work for that company or I can reject that offer and not work for that company. It's my free will to accept the job or to reject the job. That's the exact same thing. God says, I choose you to work for me. I offer you the job of salvation, free and clear. And we have the ability to accept it or to reject it. So a person that is hiring for a job, they can choose me, but that doesn't mean that I work for them just because they chose me. I work for them when I accept the position. I don't, I'm not an employee of the company just because they chose me. I'm an employee of the company because I accepted the job offer. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and wrap up there. Uh, and next week we will get in uh, to verse number five on what predestinated means and how that, that goes along with uh, where Paul talked about the choosing in verse number four.